This podcast is brought to you by Undercurrent Athletics and Hard Knocks Gym, both located at the corner of 52nd Street and Broadway. We are also brought to you by Maceo Spice and Import Company, located at 2706 Market Street. For sponsorship and advertising information, please contact Galveston Island Podcast at gmail.com. Well, hello, folks. We are back for another one. Um, I must say I've been very excited for this one all week. It's a special podcast, and I will throw it over to Alex to uh, let you guys know what's going on. Hey, guys. This is the owner of Galveston Brewery, Mark DeLasso. Mark, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, guys. I'm Mark DeLasso, the owner of Galveston Brewery. <laughs> so uh, we're going to go through and just talk about the weather first. Um, it's been really sunny lately. Um, ben, how about you? Have you been enjoying the weather? I sure have. I haven't been able to get to the beach and stuff much, man. I've been working like crazy, but uh, I need to get out there. It's a little hot, though. It's but been hot as balls, guys. Hot. Yeah. yeah. It has been Pretty super tough. hot. I've been sweating all day. I can't get over it. <laughs> but, Mark, really you know bad. how they say cool as they drink Galveston Island That's brewery true. beer. It works for me. <laughs> Immediate cool down. All right, guys. We're going to do uh, John Michael's uh, fishing report. Uh, he says, for your surf fishing report, do not expect very good, good waiting conditions. Going into the weekend with winds on the gradual increase and shifting to the southwest, you can expect some decent conditions for oversized redfish and sharks at nightfall, with reports of several fish being caught in the surf rods. Uh, the bait of choice has been live or cut mullet or bigger uh, for bigger redfish and several sharks under six feet and some over six. You'll be uh, getting a little beat up by the larger swells, but there have been several big fish just over the first bar and kind of close. So, sounds promising. Yeah. Oh, he caught. Uh, Two, I think there were over seven foot lemon sharks uh, two days ago. Oh, wow. They were huge. Massive. Nice. It was, it's kind of crazy. Off the beach? Off the beach. Nice. He has like a nice shark rack and everything. Yeah. So, Mark, when did you start? You just had your three year uh, birthday here, right? Yeah, we did. We celebrated our third year anniversary at the brewery. We're pretty excited. So, we opened in June of 14. We moved into this building here where we are on Stewart Road in January. Of 14 it took us about six months to retain our permits and kind of build out and get settled in before we made our first batch of beer was it hard to start it was it was a challenge so we I, I kind of began the process about six plus years before mm-hmm. we opened around the 2009 2010 range I was a avid home brewer for some time and made a lot of beer at home and got I'm a big hobby guy was that just like a big big hobby years yeah i had a lot of hobbies i mean i can what were your hobbies i was a saltwater aquarius i was a windsurfer i was a surfer uh the home brewing was a big one i made surfboards for a while Uh, what else what was your favorite homebrew my favorite homebrew well the most popular one was our blue bridge which is now our blue bridge amber and uh, at, at the time, I was working on a construction project, the Blue Railroad Bridge, mm-hmm. and worked with guys from Maine and from Alabama. Guys from Maine drink craft beer. Guys from Alabama don't drink craft beer. What's up with that? Um, uh, I don't know. I think it's just still bud territory, Miller territory mm-hmm. down there. Um, up north, you're definitely seeing craft beers ahead. You know, uh, Maine, Vermont, those New England states have been drinking craft beer since the late 90s. I think down in Alabama, Mississippi, even Texas in the deep south, it it just didn't take on in, until kind of this round and you know the, the 2010s and up uh, but over there colorado california oregon they've been drinking craft beer for 15 20 years did you know it was going to be success did i did not no no i actually gave i've, I've seriously planned 50 50 percent chance of failure mm-hmm. i had no idea at that Flip time it wasn't nearly as popular yeah i mean i knew i had a vision i knew i didn't have a lot of money 
went in completely cash, you know, and, and we built a brew house out of dairy equipment and we did everything ourselves. We, you know, even the building and, and the stuff, you know, little stuff like plumbing, electrical, you know, we started doing it ourselves till the city shut us down. And then we hired a, you know, a legitimate plumber to come in and, 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 you know, clean up our mess and make sure it's kosher with the city. And, and I will say though, that, that little bit of, that I did get done saved me some money and, you know, we learned along the way. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know. I just thought, I know how to do this. I, how, I can how many do this. people did you start with? And, like, how many people do you have on your uh, crew now? Pretty much, like, one, one or none. So there was myself and two good core volunteers, um, Dave Cooper and then Graham Rabe. Graham still works for us today. Uh, and they were pretty much just volunteering. And then I had a slew of buddies that were, you know, they would come on the weekends. Even my insurance guy showed up for a couple weekends <laughs> and was slinging a hammer during demolition with us. Is that pay on free yeah. beer? Yeah, well, until we ran out of beer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we ran out of beer. I had a buddy who was a rep for Carbach, and he uh, he hooked me up with, like, a stack of uh, mother and lager, which is, like, kind of a multi, multi-lager. It's not real high alcohol, but it was their seasonal at the time through the winter, and we we basically OD'd on it. And, like, I don't think anybody who was here, and Sparky, who works for us now, he was there as our as our electric electrical contractor i don't think any of us can drink mother and lager again because i ran out of my beer and we had one style of beer that was a relatively aggressive style that we just you know every day you drink some when you get off work and uh can't can't do it anymore it's just what happens so what's uh what's your favorite style of beer definitely the ipa you like that hoppy? I, I I'm on board with you. I'm, yeah, I'm with that. Yeah. i love ipas my yeah. girlfriend says they taste like earwax and i've heard that from multiple nah, people you know it so the, the thing with IPAs is it's a higher bitter mm-hmm. level, right? So that's the IBUs, right? Yeah, that's right. So international bittering unit. So the more hops you add, the more bitterness you get. But also, if you use a good, strong, aggressive American hop, like Amarillo or Simcoe or Citra or Centennial and others, um, they're also going to give you that fruity kind of resinous flavor profile, that fruity flavor that comes with it. And so you can't not have the bitterness when you add a large, large amount of hops, but you get the fruitiness. And, you know, we as humans are naturally inclined to not like bitterness. So there's so many things in nature that are that are poisonous that are bitter. Right. So so it's a true fact that, you know, initially as a young person, you don't like bitter. And so bitter is bad. It's, it's, it's somehow hardwired in us that bitter is bad. So just like beer in general, bitterness is an acquired taste. So the first time you have an IPA, a lot of people don't like it. You know, some people love it. I remember but my it's, first time having you start a, drinking them, you a will. heavy beer, IPA, it wasn't really. Yeah. And then I kept drinking it. It's like a quiet taste. Yeah. And then once you, once you go hops, you don't go back. Yeah. I, I believe that. Yeah. And, and that's just the case with IPA. So, it, you know, and it's the number one beer style in the country right now. So you can't debate uh, sales and what people like across the country. I always like to joke that it's not the number one beer style in Galveston because Tiki Weed is. <laughs> Uh, but across the nation, if you look at nationwide and craft beer, IPA is certainly still king for many years now. Well, you can't get me off the Citra. I'll tell you that right now. I love Citra Mellow. Yeah, it's, yeah, the, it's, it's our favorite. number two seller. And it's a, we like to call it a gateway IPA because it has the fruitiness in there, uh, but the bitterness is not outrageous. It's around 38 IBUs, and that's kind of where IPAs start. We use a, the way we achieve that, the nice fruitiness, um, without too much bitterness, is that we make a really expensive beer. And what that means is we add... Uh, as you boil beer, the longer you boil the hops, the more clean, neutral bitterness you get. If you just boil it for a few minutes or simmer it or steep it after you turn off the flame to the to the 
to the beer to the wort. It's not beer yet. Um, and then that's going to give you the flavor and aroma. And then we go a step further and we add a large amount of hops right into the fermenter after fermentation. And that's really the key to getting these nice fruity American IPAs. And so, but you have to add exponentially more hops. And the hops we use for these styles that are most popular are very expensive. Uh, a lot of them double the cost of the hop we might put in a traditional Pilsner or a lighter beer or an amber or whatnot. So let me ask you, you're saying IBU and you said it's International Bitterness Unit. International Bittering Units. And how it's just you... a scale mm-hmm. of, of measuring how bitter it might be. How is that determined? Taste? And so, um, well, no, it's not taste. So the way we, well, we estimate it and then we'll send it in, into a lab. And so basically, uh, when you estimate it, we use a computer program. We put in the alpha acid of the hops, which is what breaks down in the boil and gives it its bitterness, mm-hmm. and the time. So if you have the time that you're going to boil it and you have the alpha acid of the hop, you can get a pretty good estimation of the IBUs, the International Bittering Unit. And then by sending it into a lab, they use a, let's see if I can say it right, a spectrophotometer, I believe is mm-hmm. what they do. And it's actually a measure of light somehow. Uh, uh, through there and so it, like it's kind of like uh, if a tea is stronger than another tea you know like you can tell how much light can go through it I'm guessing I'm, I'm gonna go with that answer I don't that really sounds know. good it sounds good doesn't it we have a sweet lab that we're sitting in right now um, but uh, that that's I know that's a piece of equipment we can't afford and so I don't know exactly how they do it how um, long does it go from uh, in in Mark's brain to paper in the lab to the to the tap room yeah, new so beer. so new beer, just well, like so, so Galveston the, on a podcast beer. Yeah, we can turn a taproom beer pretty quick. The, the The one that takes so long is getting it out to market to sell it to your bar or restaurant. So so many bars and restaurants, you know, want us to do a special beer for them or whatnot. But that's a quite a lengthy process. As far as a beer made here for the taproom, uh, it's not uncommon for Jason and I to sit down and think up a new beer style, whip it up on paper. You know, we, we generally keep a pretty good variety of, of grains and hops around that we can make a very unique beer. And we can, within a week, we can get it in the tank. And within four weeks, we can have it on that tap wall. So we can do it in four or five weeks. Um, yeah, so in a pretty short time, we can get a beer out there on the wall. You know, for example, that India Pale Lager, that's a beer we just woke up one day and said, hey, we need to use some lager yeast. We have this much left. I did some numbers and I said, hey, let's, let's do a, a session IPL. And, and what that is, is it's, it's just like what you think, India Pale Ale, but it's a lager. So lagers take longer to ferment because you're fermenting them at a cooler temperature. It slows the fermentation process. And what that does is give you a more cleaner, neutral beer. By, cu- by having a session IPL, it actually means it's lower alcohol. So what we did was make a 4% IPA, but it's not an ale, so we can't call it an IPA. It's an IPL. So it's kind of a unique style. IPLs are out there, but they're they're a little more obscure than the IPA. And that's one great example of how we can just think up a beer on a fly and we can turn it out and put it in the tap room and see what people think about it. So obviously, retail-wise, you're at locations of the island. So you at Specs and Kroger. Are you anywhere off the island yet? Yeah, we actually quite a bit. So on the island, obviously, we're in every bar and restaurant for the most part. Off the island, we're partnered with the distributor, Del Papa Distributing is okay. our distribution yeah. partner. And it's great because they take our beer as far kind of east or north as Beaumont, all the way down through Kima, Pearland, Friendswood, Texas City, Alvin, going as far south as Lake Jackson. And we even have, there's my phone dropping. <laughs> we even have a few few accounts in Port Lavaca, I think really? is the furthest south, almost to Victoria. Actually, I think they're picking up a hot shot tomorrow to take to Victoria. So 
They take us up and down the coast. Where we don't go and where people want us to go, we're just not ready yet, is Houston. So our furthest north account is going to be Clear Lake City Boulevard. Jay Henry's off of Clear Lake City or Yard House there at Bay Bridge mm-hmm. Mall or further, for, furthest north account. Now, is that just because of dem- demand's going to be super high? or? Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple reasons there. For one is we are literally selling every ounce of beer that we need right here between us and our distribution partner. Um, also, we, we see a growth here in Galveston and the Gulf Coast of Texas, Kima, Pearland, Friendswood, everywhere in our territory. And as that territory grows, we don't want to, if we expand right now to the Houston area, we don't want to have to tell our local accounts as they grow that we can't furnish enough beer for them. So we want to grow with them. We want them to grow alongside us, even if that means we have a little extra capacity right now. We're investing in the growth of our brand with our accounts, and we're focusing really along the Gulf Coast of Texas. There's a lot of great breweries in Houston. They do a great job. There's a lot of great consumers that want us to go north that come down to Galveston and and love our beer and come here all the time. But Keep bringing them down. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Bring them down here. They'll support our accounts. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of great beer here when you guys drive down from Houston. Are you guys looking at expanding uh, warehouses? Yeah, not so much. You You guys are outgrowing this one. Yeah, we are. But, you know, people have been telling me that for two and a half years. So keep that in mind. Like we, although it appears that we're chock full uh, and we are. But you're turning room. out. I mean, you're maximizing space. Yeah, we are. We are. And I still have uh, plans to go even more in, in the space we have. So right now we're doing about 3,500 barrels of beer this year. And a barrel of beer is two of the larger kegs. So 7,000 large kegs equivalent is what we're gonna do this year last year we did about half that and next year we're gonna move some stuff around we're gonna squeeze a little space in there we're gonna drop three or four larger tanks over by the loading dock and we're gonna get up to almost double what we're doing this year so people will be surprised um you know like i said for two and a half years people wouldn't tell me i'm out of space and we we've almost tripled since that time okay so you said barrel of beer What's the beer sitting in the in the Woodford Reserve cask? Okay, so that is our Barrel Age series, and that's a really special beer. We talked earlier about, uh, you know, four weeks to turn a beer around. Well, that beer is, you know, four or five months minimum to turn around. And what we do, and this is pretty popular in the beer industry, is we'll take a beer. It's pretty common to be a high alcohol stout, a very dark high alcohol beer to start. And that beer in the fermenter is going to take longer to to ferment is going to be closer to five and a half or six weeks just in the fermenter because what happens is you need the alcohol to kind of age out and blend otherwise it tastes like there's a little bit of everclear in there because the alcohol bite is so strong you've got to age a higher alcohol beer after we've aged it in the fermenter for a little while we then take it and we and we we ship in um, freshly emptied uh, bourbon barrels from bourbon country, Kentucky usually, um, and we will fill them up with this high alcohol beer. So everything in the tap room is our Samson, and that is a ten and a half percent imperial stout. We'll put it in that barrel for minimum of four months, up to about six months is the furthest we like to go. We have to keep it climate controlled. That's why they're in the bar. And what's going to happen is because those barrels are so freshly emptied, there's still a good amount of bourbon in the wood. So it's going to soak up the bourbon into the beer. It's also going to soak up the wood flavor. And so when we then go and empty that barrel, you're going to get a nice, dark, malty, heavy, roasty beer 
that has a nice hint of bourbon and a nice hint of oak and it's added almost two percent alcohol so samson in a barrel is what we call it when it comes out of the barrel and it's over 12 percent and it's just a delicious beer and you can put it in this nice snifter you can let it warm in the glass and as it warms those bourbon flavors come out the roasty flavors come out the oak comes out and it's just a really really phenomenal beer and that's what barrel aging is all about and you can do tequila barrels you can do lighter beers you can do belgians there's all kinds of fun stuff you can do with that and we want to expand that program as we move into 2018. so drop some knowledge on me it seems like a lot of alcohol producers use bourbon barrels to age i know that mm-hmm. i think a lot of rum producers use bourbon barrels they buy them secondhand mm-hmm. beer obviously you're talking about why is everybody using these bourbon barrels i think just because the the spirit itself the way it comes out into the product is, is very smooth. And I think the flavor is really nice as a complimenting flavor, not an upfront flavor. And uh, also keep in mind that with bourbon, to be called bourbon, you can only fill it once. And so there's a plethora of bourbon barrels out there because over at Jack Daniels, for instance, where we have some Jack Daniels barrels here, uh, they're gonna fill it once. They can certainly fill it again and they'll probably get an equally nice product. I'm not going to say just as good because they'll probably get hit over the head by a bourbon guy. But an equally nice product, by filling it twice, it's still going to to get the oak in there. But to be bourbon, it can only be filled once. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do it again, you have to rechar it. And that's what I was told. And so I, that's probably why. Because these large producers, they're going to go through a whole lot of barrels. They're going to make, make the bourbon. And then they need to do something with that barrel. And it's great. It's great for them, I'm sure, to sell it to the beer industry because everybody is happy to, to purchase them, and we put a lot of great beer in it. Sure. You guys have a lot of regulation. I mean, it sounds like they got a lot of regulations in the bourbon industry. You guys have a lot of regulations. Absolutely. So, too. I mean, there's a, certainly a hand in every every pot there. You know, we, um, we have to file paperwork and pay money to the TTB, which is the federal entity. Uh, it used to be called the ATF. Now it's called the Tobacco Tech. Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Is that just a new like bureaucracy, or is that like well, ATF? Well, yeah, ATF is enough. no more. I they think. Gave, I think oh, it's the, well, oh, I think okay. they separated firearms to their own thing, and then made tobacco and alcohol their own in, thing. in one. Yeah, and so that's where the TTB. So they regulate us. We file our paperwork to them. We uh, you know pay them a seven dollar per barrel tax as well, excise tax, and then we also have the TABC. Of course, every state. In the United States, uh, alcohol laws are governed primarily by by state to state. So every state is different. So we have the the TABC, which everybody's pretty familiar with, and they also charge us seven dollars per barrel as well. And so we also have a, our own paperwork for them. We also deal a little bit with the FDA. We deal with county health for the bar. We deal with state health for the brewery. We deal with the Department of Agriculture. So, yes, there's lots of paperwork because everybody's involved in alcohol. Uh, but, you know, it, as, as a, a brewery professional, it's not terrible. You know mm. what I mean? Once you get into it, you got your list for the end of the month. You sit down and you spend about two days a month. Uh, is about what it is for me and it's not probably I could probably do it in eight hours straight but I usually it's broken up between over a couple days and by that second or third day of the month I usually have all my taxes and forms and paperwork and everything filled out and mailed off to to where it needs to go around the country work never stops does it oh no no Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so seven days a week around here we're not brewing seven days a week but it's pretty easy to find somebody working whether it's in the shop or the brew house or in the office or somewhere every day of the week there's certainly employees here besides just who you see in the in the bar area before we uh the podcast you said let's go back to the lab sit down i walk in here and i see the bunsen burner i see the Mm -hmm. microscope Mm -hmm. 
I see all the vials, the test tubes. Is this where it all starts? What, what's no, going on here? No, not really. So, um, you know, a lab is, is really important to me. And a lot of people who homebrew or just in general, they wouldn't, they, they have no idea there's even labs and breweries. So why do you need a lab? Well, uh, you know, as a homebrewer, you don't really need a lab. But as you get into production brewing, you know, we're brewing every single day. We have beer moving from early fermentation to mid-fermentation, going into carbonation, going into packaging, and on. And every day is this rotation. Somebody's washing kegs. You can hear the kegs banging around back there right now. Somebody's making beer. Somebody's selling beer. It's, it's just kind of a, uh, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't say a fine-tuned machine. I'd say more of like an old clunky diesel just churning along, <laughs> you know, <laughs> an old leaky Detroit diesel or something. Uh, but, but everything's going on. And so it's really important for a number of reasons um, to, to have a nice, clean lab space. And for the longest time, our lab space wasn't super clean. It was out there. If you look through the window, um, it was over there, which was not a super clean environment. But we still had our microscope. We still had our uh, incubator for doing certain tests. And we still had a lab space. And I think that's what's really going to separate the smaller, newer breweries um, that want to grow from the smaller breweries that do grow and, and become a little bigger because we're doing a couple things in the lab. We're doing QC. So we're testing every one of these batches of beer along its process for uh, a couple of spoilers, uh, pr primarily lactobacillus and pedicoccus, the number one spoilers of beer. And and we, we mix up a, a special, it's not really reagent, but we mix up, we basically give the bacteria food and put some beer in there in a sterile environment. And we incubate it. And if there is bacteria in that beer somewhere, we'll, we'll see a colony bloom. And the reason that we're doing this is because if we're by doing this, you can see such a small, tiny uh, bacterial infection in the product so far out that you can you can still drink the beer, but you're going to prevent a future infection to the entire brew house. And what I mean by that is that all breweries in the country reuse our yeast. So we take yeast and we, we get a fresh pitch from a lab. We can get yeast that is propagated in a lab that came from a, a, a thousand-year-old brewery in, in, uh, in Belgium. And we can buy a, an original non-mutated strain of that. And we can pitch it into a beer here. And we can make a traditional Belgian ale. Just like the Hefeweizen with those wonderful banana and clove notes, that Hefeweizen yeast came from the Bavaria region of Germany. Uh, it was harvested by a lab in the United States. They keep it pure and a slant and a slide and they, they propagate it up for us and we'll purchase that and we'll bring it here. Well, we don't just do one tank of beer and throw it away. So, you know, fermentation is a byproduct of replication for yeast. The yeast just wants to make more baby yeast. And in order to make more baby yeast and to butt off and split, it needs to consume sugars and oxygen. And as a byproduct of, of doing that, it's giving off alcohol and carbon dioxide. We want the alcohol. It wants to make a little more yeast babies. It's a wonderful relationship. And so we'll take that yeast and it's like I said, it's, it's multiplied. So there's now double. So if we put a fresh pitch into a 20 barrel tank, it's now enough for 40 or 50 barrels of beer. We'll harvest it off in a very sanitary way. We'll move it to the next batch. We'll do 10 generations of that. So we might get a fresh pitch of yeast in let's say March. And you know, in May, we might only be to generation five or something. And we'll take it up to 10 gens. Well, if you don't do these tests that we talked about, and let's say a generation two, uh, a small infection has gotten in there somewhere, uh, you're not going to taste it for three or four or five generations. It's not going to spoil the beer right away. It takes time, just like the yeast is multiplying, that bacteria will multiply. And so we'll pick it up early enough when we know there's an issue. Uh, our sanitary practices are good enough, knock on stainless, as we say around here, um, that we've never had an infection, right? Um, but... You know, if you weren't doing that, 
you may get to a level where you say, hey, this beer was spoiled, it's infected, and you then realize that not only half the beer in your brewery is is not is going to be spoiled, but the other half that was sent out to market 150, 200 miles away, you're going to have to do a recall. Is that's that, something we never ever want to do. Is that um, how does it? What does spoil? Is that just taste different? Yeah. So just, generally, it'll, it'll take on a sour note, a sour note. And so it tastes like sour, like sour beer. That's right. And then there's also sours as mm-hmm. a. I love sours. Beer. I really I love, love sours too. We all love sours here. We don't really brew too many of them. We've dabbled, we've we've kind of dabbled in them a little bit as we get larger. We want to get more into barrel aged sours where we get. a a pure pitch of this similar type of bacteria. But the difference is between the sour you may buy from the store and the souring of beer through outside sources is that, you know, there's yeast and bacteria everywhere in our environment. And if that random mutated type of yeast or bacteria gets into beer, it's not a pure pitch. And so the sour is not going to taste good. Whereas if you bring in a lactobacillus, pure lactobacillus pitch from the same lab we get our yeast from, pitch that into a beer and control it in a very specific way, different from how we control our, our environment for the beer, but still a very specific way, you can get you can kind of give it the environment it needs to make a nice, clean, and neutral tasting sour. That is exactly what you're looking for. Then you can take it the next step further and add some fruit, fruit in there, and that will give it additional sugars to grow. It also is going to give it the flavoring from the fruit, and you can put it in a barrel, and that's how you get these wonderful barrel-aged, you know, tequila barrel-aged sours with apricot. You know, that's essentially what's going on there. But they're starting with the pure pitch of, of, you know, kind of not lab grade because it's not really, you know, like specific to a lab. It's just there's not wild bacteria. There's not a a random variety of bacteria in there and and you're controlling along the way. I got a buddy who uh, he just graduated and he uh, majored in fermentation sciences. And I was Mm. chit-chatting with him and he was saying kind of the same stuff that you were saying. But, I mean, obviously, he's had a formal education. Did you just learn all this stuff throughout the way? You just started home brewing and picking it up here, there, 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 and all of a sudden, you're the wealth of knowledge we see today? Oh, yeah. You know, I think like with any hobby or or now when you get into professional level trade, uh, you know, every day is a learning experience and it just takes time. So, I know that when I started thinking about making the transition from home brewer to professional brewer, you know, I felt like I was a great home brewer. And I felt like I knew a lot about making beer. Well, by the time I got into figuring out how to open a brewery, I had to learn a lot about professional manufacturing of beer. And then I like to say the toys that we use it, you know, so the fermenters, the pumps, everything, the way we control the environment for the beer, the way we move the beer, the way we store the beer, it's all different than the homebrew level. So even though it was a great homebrewer, I had to learn something new. Um, and it just takes time. And then so from when the day we opened the brewery, we were making great tasting beer. There's no, you know, we, we all agree with that. I know I certainly do. Um, but fast forward six months or a year, you know, we, we learned as we went. And we're constantly going to conferences throughout the country of beer professionals. We're constantly having issues because, you know, you are dealing with the living organism, which is yeast. And, and we always kind of laugh that, you know, you never know with beer. So, you know, we can make the, we can make tiki weed. A million times over and I feel like we have made it a million times over uh, I think we just hit batch number 600 yesterday uh, at the brewery here and so um, randomly one day we'll have a weird hiccup where it's not that the beer is bad but just something's different something's different maybe maybe the fermentation started sluggishly or maybe the multiplication was high or low or maybe the cell count is higher or lower I mean it could just be anything 
could be anything. And then you have to kind of go back to resources in the community. Uh, you can't find everything on the internet. So luckily we have a great brotherhood of brewers here in Texas and we can reach out on a, on a private forum to all of them and put our issue out there and, and people will generally chime in and help us. I can pick up the phone and text and call Brock Wagner direct or Eric Warner from Carbock. Um, any, any one of those guys, um, Brian Royo, No Label, any one of the guys who have been around longer than us, and they'll pick up their phone, they'll reply to an email, and they'll do whatever it takes to help us figure it out. Um, you know, if they've been around longer, chances are they've seen a similar issue. Sometimes not, but sometimes they do. And it, and it goes down too. So the breweries that are smaller and newer around us, we're always willing to help them as well. Seems like a team. Kinda. It is. We're trying to further the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of ground to, to make here in Texas. Um, and we know that if you're coming in from wherever in Texas and you have a small brewery that opens up in, in your town and they and you're used to drinking maybe just Bud or Miller or you know whatever we drank when we were younger and, and that brewery, that craft brewery that you've never experienced craft beer, they make terrible beer. When you come down here to Galveston, you probably won't even give us a chance because maybe you tried that craft stuff and you don't like it. Sure. And so we, we firmly believe in the industry and the whole country as a craft and small and independent craft brewers of America that, you know, we all need to work together. Um, you certainly, you know, we all want to drive our businesses to grow and we want to be the best at what we do. But if everyone isn't making great beer, then that's bad for the whole industry. There's mm -hmm. so many consumers of alcohol and beer in general out there in the U.S., uh, but they're not all drinking locally made craft beer. And that's what we want. Sure. So what's to do with the craft beer? Why why does it make you? Why does it hit you a little harder than like let's say a, a Bud Light or a? Yeah, it's just straight alcohol content, also flavor. So I mean, you know, as far as by hitting you harder, if you mean like kind of the the inebriation part, that's mm -hmm. just generally most craft beer is five percent or higher. You know, a good so amount of our beers like? are six. Like Sabor is about four point three. Bud and Miller's they're so they're low, around four point three percent. Yeah. Also, the differences you're going to see is that. And example of Bud Light, they use rice to as an adjunct. And what they're doing is they want to make a very light, light flavored beer that is very easy to drink. They want volume. They want a, a nice, crisp, clean, neutral beer. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that style of beer. That's just one style. And so it's kind of we kind of laugh nowadays that if you're a strict Miller guy and you're a strict Bud guy uh, or Coors guy, you know those beers aren't terribly different. You know, yes, Bud, the adjunct is made with rice where they're adding rice in there to increase the sugars without increasing the flavor profile. And going over there to Miller or Coors, they're adding corn to increase the alcohol without increasing the flavor. Um, but really, they're both light macro lagers is what we call them. Here in the craft beer industry, very rarely are you going to see uh, corn or rice in any of our beers uh, across the country. There's you know a couple styles of beer like the cream ale that might use white corn, but generally what you're going to have is all malted barley beers or all malted malted beers. And so you might use wheat, you might use barley, you might use some crystal malts, but there's not going to be any adjuncts, which adjuncts is anything that gives it sugar without adding to the flavor of the beer. Um, there's not going to be any adjuncts in craft beer. And so it has a heavier mouthfeel. It has more flavor. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to give you a more flavorful product. And along with the more grain, when you add more grain, the more grain you put, the more alcohol content. So, and that's because the more grain, the more sugars, the more sugars, the more alcohol, right? Going back to the multiplication of yeast. So, you know, we want to give you um, uh, 
a, a product that is made with all malted barley. There's, you know, we like to say there's there's four ingredients in, in all craft beer for the most part. That's malt, yeast, water, and hops, and that's it. Uh, and so it's a very, you know, it's a delicious product, and you know, it's made right down the street from where you live, no matter where you are in the country now. And if you think it's a new thing because it's new in your town, it's not new. This is how they've been making beer for thousands of years. The Europeans always laugh when they come over here because America took about 300 years to, gotcha, uh, really about beer. 100 years. So yeah, to, to start making styles. And most of these styles, like the German Hefeweizen you're drinking right there, or the Belgian Ale, or even the India Pale Ale, came from 200 year old styles in Europe. So you go to you go to a little town in Bavaria, Germany, they're going to have Hefeweizen. They've been making Hefeweizen in that town for 300 years. You go over to the town of Cologne, they've been making the Kolsch. Our Causeway is a Kolsch. It's a popular style. Love Street from Karbach is a Kolsch. They've been making Kolsches in that town for hundreds and hundreds of years. Same thing with the Belgians and on and on. Um, so you know, they kind of laugh that, oh, this, this craft is new in America. There's nothing new to craft beer. These are the styles that were made. But in America, after Prohibition, so keep in mind, before Prohibition, uh, there were about, I believe, 3,000 breweries in the country before Prohibition. So in these little towns, you know, beer did not travel well. They didn't have refrigeration. So they would brew it right there locally. And if you had a German in your town, you had German beer. If you had a Belgian in your town, you had Belgian beers. If you had an Englishman in your town, you had English beers. And after Prohibition, it, it, they all closed up. All the mom and pop breweries closed up. People went on to do something new with their lives because they couldn't make beer at that time. And when Prohibition ended... It, it became kind of a game of who can make more beer uh, the fastest. And you there's a lot of heat here in the United States. And so somehow the, the, the traditional German Pilsner came forward to be the style. And over time, they figured that they needed to get it very crisp, very light, and very clean. And so they, they started bringing in the adjuncts and making it lighter. And then Adolphus Busch, a lot of people don't realize this, he is kind of the father of refrigeration because he realized that if in order for him to grow his empire and of having beer across the country, he, he had to cold. figure out how to keep it cold. And so he, uh, refrigeration was a new technology in Europe and he spent a vast amount of money bringing that to America so he could have refrigerated rail cars keeping his beer cold and moving it by rail. And so, you know, and, and then from there, refrigeration just went on. You know, you had ice houses first and the refrigeration places would make ice, and now you add ice, and it you know served so more so more purposes than just beer. Yeah, but it all started with beer. What's up with your double IPA series? You're at number eight right now, right? Yeah, and we actually are getting ready to put number nine in the tank. So we just wanted to make a double or imperial uh, India Pale Ale, which when you see double or imperial, it just means more alcohol, higher alcohol content, and also with that higher alcohol content, you get uh, more hops. Well, you get to add more hops. So. The more malted barley, the more sweetness. The more sweetness, the more you need to balance it with hops, or the more you can balance it with more hops. So it's interesting. Some people don't like IPAs, but they love double IPAs. And so it's just, and the reason why is because the even though the hops are more and the and the sugar content, not the sugar content, but the alcohol content is higher for more malt. Uh, the ratios are different, and so it's not. Sometimes it's not perceived as being so bitter, like even though there's much more hop. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like your girlfriend said that. Yeah, she did. Right? So, you know, and, and once again, it's acquired taste. Um, but India, double IPAs or IIPAs, 
uh, are very popular and we love keeping one around all the time because they're they really are a different style than this than the regular ipa and so we set out to make uh, really a perfect double IPA. We knew we had plenty of time on our hands and so we started just playing with different um, double IPA recipes and now it's been over a year. We're at number eight and we are in love with number eight. And Barry Mill may be the winner and the one we keep forever that we'd like to put into a can next year, but we're going to keep going. So we're going to do number nine and number 10 and we're just going to keep playing and keep having fun because really at the end of the day, um, making craft beer is about exploring different styles and different ingredients there might be a new hop that comes around and there might be new malt i mean anything uh, so it's all about change and different and variety but still keeping it local keeping the quality of the of, of the highest level and that's one thing we'll never skimp on is we don't we don't make a beer for cost we make a beer for greatness and we charge what we have to charge to to make money on it to, to survive and that's really what it's about so what are you guys doing different than any other brewery around here? I don't think we are. You know, I think that most breweries around the country are in the same kind of situation. Um, we just want to make great beer. Uh, the consumer is going to decide what our most popular beer is. And when they decide what, what beer they want the most, then we make more of it. If they decide they don't like a particular beer, we make less of it. So I, I think we're pretty much in the same boat as so many breweries around. Um, you know, size is the only difference. You know, as as we get to 3,000 barrels and our buddy down the street might be at 1,000 barrels and our buddy up the street might be at 6,000 barrels, we have different goals and different things and different challenges that we need to do to sustain where we are, uh, maintain quality, and still kind of look to the future. So, you know, I don't think, I mean, some, some breweries want to get as big as they can. Other breweries want to stay teeny, tiny, tiny. Um, we're, we're neither one of those, you know, we, we don't want to become a huge behemoth. Uh, we also want to grow, you know, we want to grow up to closer to eight or 9,000 barrels a year would, would be great. Um, right now, like I said, we're at 3,500 barrels. So I got a question that I kill myself, but I didn't ask. Sure. You own a brewery. Do you have any secret hangover cures? <laughs> yes. Prevention, which is in my mind, water. So I, I like to drink a lot of water. I still get hungover probably way while too much. While you're drinking, you drink water while you're drinking. I try to. I try to. You'll see right here, be, only because we're chatting a lot. I'm not drinking as much, but mm -hmm. I'm going to take a sip of this delicious water in front of me. You listen to mm -hmm. Alex? I am listening. <laughs> What's your favorite beer? Yeah, it's that's usually not hydration a that gives you that hangover. What's your favorite beer that's not a Galveston Island brewery beer? Oh, gosh. So, you know. That's a great question. It's a tough one. It's I'm a sure. tough one. It's a tough one. There's a lot of great beers out there. I would say, you know, I much like you, Alex, I love sours, right? And so I'm real big into sours. I know I visited Avery Brewing in Boulder, Colorado a number of times. And, and I'm just going to say, um, you know, they make all different types of sours. But one of my favorite, I'm not going to pick a particular beer, but I'll say a particular style would be like a, a somewhere between an 8 and 10% uh, Belgian beer that is aged in tequila barrels with mm -hmm. something added that's just to me it's like almost like a fine wine and I can sip it and it still has a good amount of booze so I don't have to drink like 10 of them and it's just a there's just so much flavor going on and we would love to make sours around here so I'm pretty um, uh, you know jealous of that or in awe of, of, of the, the amount of time and effort that goes into making some of those beers and when you do make sours up to 25% of the barrels can go bad and so um, I'd say tequila barrel aged something awesomeness around the eight to ten percent. I don't have. You have to get those from Mexico, right? 
Uh, yeah, generally, you know, there is agave spirits, you know, around, so you can't get them in the United States, but, you know, generally with barrels availability to us, they're going to come from the larger producers. Uh, and with tequila, they're reusing those barrels, and so they're going to be more expensive than like a bourbon, because sure. as we talked about earlier, you only use them once. Yeah, they're so awesome. Yeah. Well, but I love a great IPA. <laughs> I do too. Well, we're going to wrap this up, Mark. I really mm-hmm. appreciate it. Tomorrow we're going to be at Waterman's Grill um, doing a boat show with Ron Hoover of Galveston. Awesome. So, we'll have a tiki wheat while you're there because they're great customers. Yeah. Hey, we're going to do it. All right, Mark. We really appreciate it. Hey, cheers, it. guys. It was great. Thank and thank you, you thank guys you for much. listening back home. And come out and visit your local brewery. Hey, before we go, what uh, where are you located and what are your hours are you brewing? Yeah, so we're at 8423 Stewart Road. The tap room is open every day, Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock. And on Saturday and Sunday, we open at noon. And we're family friendly. We're pet friendly. We have a playground on site. Y'all got uh, rated thir- number 13 yeah, for top brews in America that's on right. TripAdvisor. We were number 10 out of 13 from... Um, wasn't TripAdvisor. It was Yelp. It was Yelp. Okay. And we... You know, it's kind of funny. I laugh because... Um, I feel bad because we've been hanging up on Yelp for three years straight. And then they win, right? <laughs> <laughs> they call a lot and we don't give them a dime and we hang up on them a lot. But they, they put us on that list. and, and Not a lot uh, of bad things to ho- say. Hopefully whoever was writing that article is not the same ones calling us because <laughs> I feel really bad. Well, Mark, we sure appreciate you having us. Do you have us. a website? We do. www.galvestonislandbrewing.com. And that's brewing, B-R-E-W-I-N-G. Uh, also, just pull out your phone and punch in Google and punch in Galveston Brewery, and we'll pop right up and come and see us. You can follow us at Galveston on Podcast. Uh, check that on Facebook, galvestonpodcast.com. That's the website. And you guys have a good day. And Ben, as always, stay salty. Cheers. <laughs>